Well, I invite you to turn your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we'll be looking at verses 17 through 20 this morning. And we'll be focusing on Paul's desire in relationship to his presence with the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And it's my privilege to read for you the Word of God this morning. Inspired and holy. Given for our edification and our blessing. What a privilege. But we brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exultation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming? For you are our glory and joy. Have you ever had false accusations made against you by somebody else? Someone that tells a lie about you or distorts the facts trying to damage your reputation or harm your work in one way or another? Have you ever had people say things about you that weren't true just to try to get under your skin or to hurt you in one way or another? Well, many of us probably have, and therefore you can identify with the Apostle Paul. His enemies were insinuating wrongly about him that when they had to leave Thessalonica, the city, their sudden departure proved their lack of unconcern for them. The accusations were insinuating that the fact that they rushed out of town so quickly indicated they really don't love the church. And the fact that they haven't come back endorses that idea. They don't care about you. Oh, they say they do, but they don't care. They were just here to profit from you. They were here with wrong motives. They've abandoned you and they have forgotten about you. That's what Paul and Silas and Timothy are. That's their character. And so they were gone. And these lies, these insinuations, these false accusations were were coming at the church to try to turn them away. To drive a wedge between them and the apostles. And hopefully to sever their confidence in Christ. When that happens, sometimes it's very prudent to defend your integrity, particularly when the name of Christ is involved or our witness for Christ is involved. And that's exactly what Paul is going to do in this section. Not only is Paul going to defend his integrity, but he's going to do that in one of the most intimate and personal ways as he pours out his heart, his love, his affection for them in this passage. How could they doubt his love? 
just hearing him communicate his heart would in and of itself defend his integrity and overthrow the false accusations made against him. You see, the early church was a very close-knit community, bonded on a very personal level. They spent time together. They had rich fellowship together. It's more of a struggle today in the church to get close to the koinonia or the fellowship that they experienced in the first century because of many of the challenges that come with living in the 21st century. Social media, on the one hand, enables us to stay in contact easier with people and with more people. But at the same time, we are more isolated without personal contact. We can tweet, we can text, but we don't see one another's face or spend time in their presence as, as much as they did in the first century. One study actually determined that in prior generations, 48%, almost half of the people, found meaningful community within their churches. But today it has dropped from 48% down to 22% of people that now find meaningful fellowship and community within their local churches. The irony is that we're more connected today, but we're also more isolated today. I remember not too long ago, I went to either a coffee shop or someplace I had to go in to to order, and I saw a table with four or five young people sitting at the table. And normally you'd expect them to be chatting and laughing, and they were all on their cell phones. All of them around this table. No communication going on at that point in time. They were all on their cell phones, so that even though they're communicating more, we're more isolated, we're more disconnected from people. We don't have that personal relationship, that face-to-face communion and fellowship that was so rich and vital to the earlier generations. Personal relationships today are de-emphasized. It's all remote. It's all not personal. It's just a text or a tweet. When Paul was there with the Thessalonians, he experienced a deep fellowship with them. It was very intimate. It was loving. And he's communicating that to them in this passage. Part of the purposes is, of course, to refute the false accusations against him that he didn't love them, that he didn't care for them, and that's why he abandoned them and left at the first sign of trouble. He he you know, he, he was out of there and he hasn't come back. So that just reinforces again that he, he he's not really he's not looking out for your welfare. And so he just it's only he just pours out over and over again his love and his desire to see them. And, and one of the things I get from this passage is that this, this depth of love and personal fellowship needs to be revived within the church again. It's too easy to be distant. It's too easy to come and just be disconnected. 
That's not what the body of Christ is supposed to be. We're a body. There's supposed to be love and personal fellowship. It takes effort. So in verse 17 and 18, the first thing we see in this passage is Paul's longing for them. He longed for them. Again, he says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. So notice how he addresses them first. He calls them brethren. They're not customers. They're not clients of the Apostle Paul. As if a monetary relationship governed their time together. As if he, as if he was peddling some new philosophy just trying to get their money. No, they were a family. They're brethren. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a term of great affection, and it's also a term of great connectedness. They're brethren. Paul tells the church at Galatia that they were a household of faith or a family of faith. That's what the church should be. We are a family of faith. And remember, Jesus emphasized this when He redefined His own physical family. Well, His own family, spiritual family, from physical to spiritual. Remember when His mother and His brothers came up and He was ministering in a big context and they were outside the house and they, they wanted to see Jesus, His mother and His brothers. And so they gave Him a report. You know, your mother and brothers are here. They want to see you. And He said, well, who are my mother and my brothers. And in Matthew 12, he says, For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. In other words, what Jesus is doing is redefining his covenant family. It's not based on physical ties like it was in the old covenant. It's a spiritual family. It's those who know God. Those who Love God. Obey God. That's my family. So the family of God is what we are in as believers in Jesus Christ. We are brethren. And that means something. It should mean something. And notice he goes on to say, but we brethren haven't been taken away from you for a short while. And by emphasizing we were taken away from you. He's emphasizing that it was not our choice to leave you. We didn't want to leave you. We were taken away from you. Now, if you go back to uh, Acts chapter 17 and look at this incident that's recorded by Luke, you can find some of the circumstances that caused them to have to be basically removed from the Thessalonian church. Remember in Acts chapter 17, there were jealous Jews who took wicked men from the market. They formed a mob and they attacked Jason's house. They were, they were trying to find Paul and Silas to arrest them and abuse them and, and punish them. But they didn't find them at Jason's house. Apparently they were staying with Jason one of the early convert believers. So they dragged Jason and the other believers to the city authorities. 
accuse them of welcoming the apostles who had upset the world, acted contrary to the decrees of Caesar, so they were in civil mutiny against Caesar, saying there's another king besides Caesar, and that's Jesus Christ. And so they, this violent mob arrested them, dragged them before the city authorities, and because they couldn't find Paul and Silas, they made Jason give a pledge. We don't know exactly the nature of that pledge, but it was something very dangerous. And the cost was too great for Paul and Silas to stay there any longer. So the brethren, looking out for the welfare of Paul and Silas, immediately sent them to Berea. So this is what Paul means when he says, we were taken away from you. It was not their choice to leave them. They didn't want to leave them. But they were forced to leave. So again, his enemies, Paul's enemies, were insinuating that this sudden disappearance and departure just proved their lack of love and lack of concern. And the fact they hadn't come back endorses it. But they had, uh, in reality, abandoned and forgotten the believers there. It's interesting when Paul uses this word taken away, this is the only time this word occurs in all the New Testament. And it's a word that literally means we were made orphans. In the Greek literature outside of the New Testament, this idea can also imply the, the concept of parents who are robbed of their children. So it can actually go both ways. It can refer to, to an orphan who loses their parents. And Paul says, we were made orphans. But remember, he's already referred to his, himself and his ministry to them as a mother. Again, happy Mother's Day. He says, I'm like a nursing mother to you. I was with gentleness, loving you and caring for you like a nursing mother. But also as a father, I exhorted you. So he's already used the parental analogy of himself. So the idea probably is, we were bereaved of you, our children. We were the parents. We lost you. We were taken away from you, but we as a parent, we lost our children. So again, just the the depth of emotion and love that is being communicated by this language is very powerful. We were robbed of you. You were stolen away from us in effect. And it almost kind of reminds me of scenes you might have seen on on TV of World War II where the Nazis would capture Jewish families and then they would separate them out. They would take the parents from the children, put them in different boxcar to to ship them off to some concentration camp. It's that sense of agony and loss, that intense inner turmoil that Paul is communicating. He's just saying, I loved you. I did not want to leave you. I was forced to leave. And it's almost as if someone stole my children from me. So you can just sense the the love that's coming out of his heart for these people. He adds to that for a short while because I think Paul is confident he's going to make it back soon. It's going to be a while, but I think he's he's anticipating getting back to them. But notice he says, we were taken from you in person, not in spirit. 
His body was taken away, but His heart stayed there in Thessalonica. They were always on His mind. So the old expression, out of sight, out of mind, was not true for the Apostle Paul. They were out of sight, but they were always on His mind. And then he adds in verse 18, for we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once. It was our heart's desire to get back to you at Thessalonica. And I wanted to come more than once. The implication here is many times. Now when he was in Athens, it was still too dangerous for him to go back to Thessalonica, so he did send Timothy, if you remember, in Acts. But he himself was not able to go back because of whatever it was that was preventing him. It just wasn't safe at that point. But Paul wants him to be in no doubt as to the deep affections that he had for them to refute Again, those false accusations. There's a lesson here, I think, that uh, again, kind of screams out of this passage that Paul's relationship with the people and the people's relationship with one another being in a family of faith means that the church is really far more than just a social club. It's more than a company business meeting. It's more than a, a rally where strangers come together for a, for a short time. No, we're a family knit together by gospel love. Love for Christ. And every meeting that we have is a family reunion. It's where we get together and we enjoy one another. We love one another because we are a family. And it's such a blessing when, you know, when, when we give the final benediction. I mean, it's just people don't immediately scatter. A lot of times, people are able to stay around and visit and fellowship. And that communicates this notion of the mutual love and fellowship. Now, why were they not able to come back? Well, Paul says, for we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. So his plans had been hindered or thwarted by Satan himself. Now this is kind of interesting because when you look at who Satan is, he's accuser of the brethren. He's like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He even had the audacity and the insanity, I might add, to, to try to tempt the Lord Jesus Christ in the wilderness so He's not above tempting us for sure. Jesus described Him in one of His parables as birds which swoop down and gobble up the Word of God so it can't take root and bear fruit. So Satan is always trying with his crowbar to, to separate us from Scripture so that we forget to read it. We don't meditate on it or study it. Because he hates the Word of God and he wants to get it out of your heart and mind. He doesn't want it to penetrate and bear fruit in your life. So he'll do anything he can to, to sever us from spending time in God's Word. And then he injects into our minds very worldly thoughts. You remember when Jesus told His disciples that He was going to have to go and be betrayed and suffer and then put to death and 
Simon Peter came up to him and rebuked him. He said, surely, Lord, this will not happen to you. And what Jesus said to Peter, He said at that point, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And Satan oftentimes will come into God's people and just try to press into us all the concerns of the world, all the concerns of men, so that we're not thinking God's thoughts, we're thinking man's thoughts. Because Satan wants to, in any way he can, undermine our sanctification. He's a liar. He's a father of lies. Remember, to Peter had to later rebuke Ananias and ask him, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So Satan tries to bring his lies into our own hearts and deceive us. He's a deceiver. He disguises himself as an angel of light. He oppresses believers. Remember Paul's thorn in the side was a messenger of Satan to torment him. He tries to oppress uh, believers, to seduce believers, to cause them to fall away if he could. And he promotes division and an unforgiving spirit within the church. The bottom line is Satan hates Christ and he hates us. And he tries to do anything he can to throw a monkey wrench into the progress of the kingdom of God. And so very simply, Paul is saying that we wanted to come to you, and I personally more than once, but Satan hindered us. He thwarted us. Of course, that's why we need to always put on the full armor of God as believers, because Satan is a real enemy. We're to resist the devil. He will flee from us. But here's the point we have to understand. Even though Paul is saying and we wanted to come back, we tried to get back to you, but Satan hindered us. That even when Satan seems successful to put up roadblocks to prevent our progress, God's secret will, God's decrees are still being accomplished. Look at the book of Job. So all that happened, remember, with Satan being the immediate means of bringing all this judgment and harm and suffering into Job's life. Job, nevertheless, at the end of the book, acknowledged God's sovereignty over it all when he said, I know to God that you can do all things that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Satan cannot thwart any of God's purpose. Everything he does, he has to be permitted to do it by God. So even though Satan hindered them from returning, Paul would certainly agree that it was still God's hidden, mysterious, secret will that was taking place. When Satan hinders our plans, he's unknowingly advancing God's plans. So how did Satan do that? How did he hinder their progress? Well, we simply don't know because Paul didn't tell us. Some have speculated that maybe uh, Satan had so worked it in the minds of the Politarchs, the civil leaders of Thessalonica, to continue to remind Jason of this pledge and the pain and the forfeiture that would result if Paul ever stepped back into the sea. We don't know. Others say maybe the Jews had uh, plotted to 
do something to Paul if he ever came back? We don't know. But Satan was behind it. And, and somehow Paul had that, that insight. We don't know how Lord may have just given him that insight. We don't know. But the point that Paul is making is that our failure to return is not due to our indifference towards you or lack of desire to see you, but Satan's interference. That's why we have not made it back yet. So again, you can tell he's defending himself at the same time pouring out his love for them. And then we have the last two verses of of Paul's joy. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exultation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. So Paul says that these believers, this church, for him, they were his hope. They were his joy. And they were his crown of exultation. So how were they his hope? How is is the, the believers there, the church at Thessalonica, Paul's hope? Kind of an interesting uh, question to ask. Uh, most of the commentators end up going down the road of saying that they are Paul's confident hope of having a fruitful ministry. His hope of Christ's redeeming work being real in their life seen by their perseverance. So that they are His hope that the time He was there was blessed of God and actually resulted in a new church being planted and for gospel fruit coming from it. Coming from His labors among them. So they are His hope. His hope of, of, of knowing that His time there was blessed of God. That there was a fruitfulness in, the, in his ministry there. And so he has his hope in them in that, in that regard. Possibly that's the idea. There also is joy. You know, I mean, believers had joy in one another. And he had great joy in them, in their faith, in their love for Christ, in their fellowship. He had great joy. Not only now, but also when the Lord is going to come back in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming. And then he adds that they were His crown of exaltation. Another interesting way to describe the believers there in that church. This crown is not the crown of royalty that a king would wear, but it's the word that's used of an athlete's crown of victory. It's the word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 9.25 where he says, you know, the, the athletes, they compete to, to win a perishable wreath or crown. But we compete to win an imperishable crown or wreath. So that's the word that's used here. So the Thessalonians were a crown, a wreath of victory that, that Paul exulted in, that he rejoiced in that he boasted in, as some translations have. And even though God was the one who saved the Thessalonians, He used Paul as the means of preaching the Gospel there. 
And Paul could rejoice and exult and wear the, the new church as it were as a victor's crown on his head because God used him in establishing that church. So it probably has a reference to the rewards for godly service and labor and ministry that we do in this life will ultimately receive the victor's crown, the joy, the exultation uh, when Christ comes back. That may very well be what, what Paul has in mind. God's grace had turned them from serving idols to serve a true and living God. Chapter 1 verse 10. Their persevering faith, even in times of sufferings, was evidence of God's call on Paul's life. He, called, he, set, he saved Paul, he set him apart, made him an apostle to go out and preach the gospel, plant churches, and to suffer for the name of Christ. And the very fact that this new church was there was evidence, confirming evidence, that Paul, that God was blessing Paul's ministry so that even a new church was the result there at Thessalonica. As Paul had told the Corinthians, are you not my work in the Lord? You're the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So he could exult in that. He was wearing that like an like a athlete's victor's crown. You're my work. You're the seal of, of my apostleship that Christ has blessed the work of my hands and you're the evidence of it. And when the reward comes, when Christ comes back, it'll be like a, a crown of victory that I will rejoice in by the grace of God. So he was... He, and again, what's he doing? He's just, he's just showing how much he delights in them. He loves them. He longs to be with them. So all these false accusations obviously are being torpedoed. All of this hope and joy and crown of exultation will ultimately come to pass in its highest degree at the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming. This word coming is um, the word parousia or parousia as some people pronounce it. And it refers to Christ's second coming. This is a word in secular Greek was used to refer to the coming of someone of great importance. It would be used of a king coming to a city or Caesar's coming into a city to spend time there. So the word coming was used in secular Greek to refer to the royal visit from a, a king or an emperor. Very important person comes. And so Paul takes this word and now he amplifies it to the ultimate degree by saying, when Christ comes, He's the King of kings. And He's the Lord of lords. And one day he, He's going to come. He's going to come back. And he uses the same word, but he elevates it now to refer to the actual second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is, has supremacy over all other kings and all other lords. So that this word coming, parousia, will become a technical term for the royal visit of Jesus Christ at His second coming. And that's when 
Christ will be fully and gloriously present with His people and that's when our hope and joy and crown of exaltation will, will reach its final consummation. Paul envisions that when the Lord comes back that the saints, when they're glorified, will also receive a reward for their labors. This is what he told the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8, Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. And so Paul is contemplating something that we ought to think about as well. That when we stand before the Lord, we will also receive rewards. Not earning our salvation, of course. That's a free gift for those who repent and place their faith and trust in Christ alone for forgiveness. But for faithful service, God is even going to reward us for that, even though it's by His grace. And so Paul says, everyone will receive their own reward. You'll receive a reward for what you do. For the little or the much, Christ will grant that to us when He, when he comes back. This crown of uh, boasting that Paul has referenced or crown of exaltation. Don't, don't get the idea that he's actually going to boast in himself in any way for his labors. He would never do that. Ultimately, his crown of boasting is boasting in what Christ has accomplished through him. All the glory goes to Christ, not to him. Remember what he also told the Corinthian church. I planted Apollo's water, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Whatever success we have in ministry, whatever success we have in, in, in sanctification, or even in our work or in anything else, whatever work we do, God causes the growth. God gets the glory. And that's why he could tell them again, the Corinthians who are kind of prone to pride. He said in chapter 15, verse 9, For I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not even fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And that grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. God gets all the glory. So even though we get the rewards, they are grace rewards because of what God has done in and through us for His glory. And that's why he could, Paul could also emphasize this to the, to the Roman church when he said in chapter 15 of Romans, for I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and by deed. So Paul only boasted, he only exulted in what Christ had done as he, in another place, he says, I only boast in the cross of Christ, but as Paul preached the cross of Christ, God blessed and built a church, and then Paul receives a crown, the victor's crown, that he will exult in by the grace of God, by the power of God, by the working of God in and through Him. So their salvation makes a crown for the missionaries, a crown of exaltation. They become trophies of God's grace. 
And remember in Revelation 24, what, what, what do the 24 elders do with their crowns? They cast them before His feet. Because ultimately they know that all the crown that they've received belongs to Christ. Because of His grace, His power, His Spirit at work in them and through them. So that ultimately Christ will give us a crown for faithful service. And we will give that crown back to Him. Because ultimately it's all to His praise and glory. The lesson there for all of us in this room is that when Christ comes back, uh, we will stand before the Lord. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, the good or bad, the all could be everybody, believers and unbelievers. But every believer is included. We will appear before the judgment seat of Christ and we'll be recompensed for our deeds, our service, our acts of love, our ministry to our family, to our friends, to our church, for our faithfulness at work. We will be recompensed for our deeds in the body according to what we have done, good or bad. For the believer, of course, there's no condemnation at this judgment seat of Christ. There's only a judgment of commendation. All condemnation has been borne by Christ. For there's no condemnation in Jesus Christ. There'll only be rewards for faithful service. Some like Paul will have a big one. But uh, we'll all stand before the, the judgment seat of Christ. And it's something to make us pause and to think about our own life, our own ministry, our own service. Because we'll stand before the Lord and He will recompense for that service done for Him in this life. So the lesson from this is that we are stewards of God's gifts. He has given us ministries and trusted to us ministries in our marriages. You have a ministry. In your families, you have a ministry. In our work at church, we should have ministries. We should be zealous for good deeds, as Paul tells Titus. And we should pursue that. Be rich in good works. Because one day the Lord will reward us. And what He gives us is ultimately we'll give Him the praise for producing it in us. The spiritual fruitfulness and faithfulness of the Thessalonians was evidence that God had blessed Paul's ministry and labors there. And he was looking, they, they were for him a, a, a victor's crown of exultation. And in, and in reciting that, I think Paul is encouraging us yeah, minister. Serve. For you too will wear a crown one day yourself. But their faith, their perseverance was a confirmation that God had blessed Paul's ministry and his stewardship. And he was looking forward to that crown of exaltation. 
And then he closes again with verse 20. You Thessalonians are our glory and our joy. Paul repeats this again just to kind of drive home his attitude of his heart towards them. That you are our glory and you are our joy. Both now and ultimately to the nth degree when Christ comes back. And it's not sinful for Paul to to rejoice in his own glory. You are our glory and our joy. Because he knows where the glory ultimately comes from. That it was God who chose them. It was God who opened their heart. It was God who gave them faith. It was God who sustains them. It's God who will keep them to the end. So that all the the crown of glory for the Apostle Paul ultimately goes to the glory of the Lord. And the joy, final note, you are my joy. It's just like parents who rejoice in their children. You are my joy. So in conclusion, Paul basically in many ways has been defending the false accusations that have been shot at him from all these people trying to drive a wedge between him and the church. And so all these accusations have undermined him. So he has has defended himself by just lavishing on them the verbal expressions of his love, his deep caring for them. And I think that is an example for us. Because really, in Paul's love for them, who is he imitating? Christ's love for His church. And see, we should imitate that as well. We should imitate to one another the same love that Christ has for us. For Jesus tells us to go and love one another as I have loved you. And they're seeing that in Paul's love for them. And so how we need in our church, in every church, for leaders and members to love and care for one another. Why? Because we're in the family of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. But we also need to take seriously the charge, the encouragement, and the charge to be faithful in our stewardships given to us by God at home, at work, in this church, to seek to honor Christ and looking forward to the rewards that Christ will give to all of His children whenever He comes back. Paul's imitation of the love and delight and joy in, in these people should be imitated in our hearts as well. And may God through His Spirit give us the grace to desire to imitate that joy and love in one another because we're in the family together by God's grace. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do thank You again for the challenging words of the Apostle Paul. And Lord, oftentimes our our love for one another can grow cold. Our love for You can grow cold. And it's shown, Lord, just in the, the lack of way we communicate that to one another. But Father, we thank You for the reminder from the Apostle Paul that all believers are in the family. Yeah, we're all different. We're all unique in many different ways. But we are a family. We love one another. We should care for one another. 
And that's the hard attitude that Paul had for this dear church. And Lord, we pray that Your Spirit would ingrain that within us as well. That we would be known as a church that loves Christ and loves one another. That we care for one another. We want to spend time together to personally minister to each other. Lord, we fail in many, many ways. Life is busy. It's hectic. There's so many things that make life complicated. We know that, Lord. But we pray that You would help us to grow more to be and to have a heart like the Apostle Paul. That Your name, that Your gospel, that Your love would be manifested in our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.